Wonder Bread, the polygraph test, the term robot. What do these iconic contributions to human society have in common? They're all turning 100 this year. And here's one more thing joining the list. You're now listening to the 100th episode of The Fiona Show, Transfer Pricing. Cue the confetti and champagne. Today, we're revealing the 10 most important lessons of the last 100 episodes from the mouths of those who know the industry best, members of the OECD, professors, PhDs, economists, tax attorneys, authors, and more who join us every week on the show. Joining us today is Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song, a pivotal part of the show as we know it, lending her expertise. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello, but first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. It's out with the old and in with the new in Paraguay. The South American country introduced new transfer pricing rules related to commodity transactions. The new guidance, General Resolution Number 86, was released in December 2020 and went into effect on April 17th. What can taxpayers expect? The guidance covers the application of the sixth method, which is utilized for export commodities on some of our favorite things, rice, corn, wheat, soy, and more. Is it just me or is anyone else feeling hungry? Taxpayers will have to adjust recorded commodity prices to those of the price published by the relevant exchange and illustrated in the transfer pricing technical report. They will also need to spell out related party transactions, the party relationship, and total exports. If you're paying taxes in Ukraine, now's the time to listen up. Ukraine did a major overhaul of its tax code, which affects, you guessed it, transfer pricing. Taxpayers can expect a laundry list of new additions and requirements. Are you really that surprised? It includes an adoption of the three-tier documentation approach and a broadened definition of dividends. It also lays out rules around controlled transactions with commodities and the necessary economic justification for controlled transactions. For taxpayers, the new obligations feel thicker than a bowl of borscht, but for the tax authority, it's the chance to up their compliance strength and oversight. Everyone loves a good proposal story, but before you get wrapped up in the ring, the surprise, and the getting down on one knee, it's not that kind of proposal. This is a transfer pricing podcast, after all. The U.S. recently, though, proposed a 15% global minimum tax, a concession to the Biden administration's original 21%. While the plan has some countries racing to say, I do, it's giving others cold feet. Ireland has voiced its very public opinion against the tax, or at least anything higher than 12.5%, while Hungary considers it, quote, a violation of financial sovereignty, unquote. Even with the mixed bag of viewpoints, the U.S. Treasury still seeks the possibility of a higher rate, announcing that, quote, discussions should continue to be ambitious and push that rate higher, unquote. With Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 decisions in a stalemate, this global tax boxing match has definitely been thrilling to watch, and it's not over yet. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. 
Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Mimi Song. And Mimi, it is our 100th episode. I, I can't believe it. If you told me, Mimi, that you actually had done more than 50 episodes or more than half, I'd believe you. But I don't have the data in front of me to tell me if that's true. But that feels true because you're such a presence and so important to this show. Well, thank you, Matt. I It doesn't feel like that either. So I, I'm not really sure how many of these podcasts I've been a party to, but it doesn't feel like that many. And yet it feels like a lot. I don't know if that makes sense, right? <laughs> well, well, let's dive in. You have been writing with us at least since our first episode. You're on the first episode. What has the journey been like for you from single digit episodes now to triple? It's been fun, I, I have to tell you. I mean, I think that the podcast phenomenon, if you will, I never knew I would be a podcaster, so to speak. I, I remember, Matt, when you first joined Cross Border Solutions, you were telling me you had done podcasts in the past, and I was like, interesting. We thought that was a, a very generational thing, if I can add that. But then it's been fun, and I think it's a great format to share information, and it just it resonates well with people's lifestyles today, right? So who knew we would get to episode 100? 100%, absolutely. Not to make too obvious a pun, but what's something <laughs> you've learned about transfer pricing through the show so far? You know, I feel like on every episode, I learn something new. And whether or not that's just the perspective of the guest we might have on the show or perspective of some of our producers, right? I mean, I think transfer pricing, because it is more of an art than a science, and we say that all the time, it's really amazing to hear different people's perspectives, to learn from that perspective, and then to figure out exactly how I want to formulate my own changes from my own perspective to either incorporate that analysis or not, right? It's Transfer pricing is always, in my mind, going to be an evolutionary field, if you will, right? There's never going to be one right answer. There are always going to be different perspectives. And, you know, this is why I think it's been so much fun, right? So this is why I'm happy I have chosen this as my career path <laughs> for now. <laughs> I, I will say that fluidity and how it is changing definitely gives you a reason to go to 100 episodes to provide constant evolving coverage of something that is itself very much evolving. Well, absolutely. I was going to say over the past 100 episodes too, we know that there have been changes in the legislative environment when it comes to transfer pricing. And there continues to be enhancements in terms of the guidance, in terms of perspectives within this transfer pricing field. Absolutely. And I know we're not usually in the spirit of picking favorites, but do you have a favorite episode so far or one that was particularly enlightening? There was an episode and it was one of our European guests. So I'll just leave it at that. And what's fascinating about that is I wouldn't say that I had the exact same perspective as our guest, but I thought that that was fantastic because I was pleasantly surprised at the opposing perspective, right, from our particular guest. But I loved it because it really helped me to expand my own thought process and not be so limited in terms of this particular perspective. So, I mean, I, I think this is this has always been a really great learning experience, even for myself. 100%. I'd be remiss not to mention that I think the timing of our episode with Barbara Montagani on transfer pricing in lost positions, transfer pricing in a disaster, transfer pricing in a market downturn. I think we generally referred to it as transfer pricing in a disaster. The point being that when you have to report losses, and we did that right at the end of 2019, we all know what 2020 turned out to be. So right, it right. was very, very prescient advice it all was, around. That's right. And very timely, right? So yeah. I hate to look at it through the lens that we lucked out with that content. I don't think I could quite put it that way, but I think that timing definitely helped out a lot of our listeners 
get through a rough patch and hopefully will continue to serve them no matter what happens in the future. But what do you hope, actually, listeners get out of the show? Honestly, I hope they get a little bit of education and entertainment at the same time, right? It's it, Transfer pricing sometimes can be not the sexiest topic. So <laughs> so at the same time, I what's that word we've used in the past? Edutainment. That's what I hope that our listeners have been able to get out of this, right? A little entertainment, a little bit of yeah. education, and sort of in a way that they can understand it so that it's palatable, right? Absolutely. I've heard that term before, but now I feel the overwhelming need to update my title on LinkedIn. I'll say <laughs> that till after Edutainment host. <laughs> yes, edutainer extraordinaire. <laughs> Diving into the lessons that we have for today, covering our 100 episodes, we're going to try to just boil these down to 10 lessons over this time we think that everyone can take away from the course of the show. And for the first lesson, that will be transfer pricing compliance is all about country-specific regulations. M&Es need to do their homework and follow country-by-country country regulations, not OECD guidance, or face the consequences. And just to ram this home, we have Cross-Border Solutions' own Valeria Marino in Episode 50, Transfer Pricing in Italy. Italian requirements which are very strict and are related to formatting, yes. Most of our clients, they are like often ask a lot of questions of how the report looks. Sometimes for them it looks odd, you know, because they, that's the way that the report needs to be in Italy. Mimi, what's your takeaway there? Italian requirements are a great example of what each of these countries are looking for. I mean, they make it pretty formalistic in terms of the actual reporting structure and format as opposed to substantive, right? And not to discount the need for having the actual economic analysis be reflective of the facts and circumstances, but they also want you to make sure you're following their explicitly rigid requirements, right? And so we know that Italy highlights this need to pay attention to the country-specific requirements because while they may be an OECD country, they're not laying out the documentation format in the same way that the OECD guidelines does. And so always keep that in mind. Absolutely. Now turning to another jurisdiction, another episode. Here's Sai Prasanna from episode 40, Transfer Pricing in India, on the same lesson. On the master file, one thing we could clearly see is that the detailing, the level of detailing which India requires goes slightly beyond the Action 13's basic recommendations. So for instance, uh, India requires a detailed description or to conduct a FAR of all the constituent entities that contribute to at least 10% of the revenues or assets or profits of the group, whereas Action 13 would say that give a brief FAR profile of the principal value contributors. Mimi, what's your takeaway from that? India, once again, another jurisdiction that has very specific requirements. They took what the OECD outlined in terms of what should be the requested components of information, and they layered on their own expectation, right? And this is not just happening in Italy and India, but it's happening in a variety of different jurisdictions. And this just highlights the need to be very cognizant of what those requirements look like and to pay attention so that you don't miss something along the way. Of course. And that brings us to lesson number two, proper documentation must be a priority and it has to be reviewed on a regular basis to be worthwhile. Just to ram this point home, here's one of our favorite guests, Lorraine Eden. Episode 29, is the arm's length standard really the problem? Failure to document. Uh, compulsory documentation has to be done and has to be prepared, even if you don't have to give it out. But if you don't document, you leave yourself open to the tax authority coming after you. So failure to document is clearly number one. We also have a quote from Barbara Montagani in episode 42, Are You Transfer Pricing Audit Ready? So that you know that because compliance is not this blanket thing like, I am hereby compliant and I will always be compliant. Like mm -hmm. compliance is an annual consideration and you're the person or the people or the group or whoever who sort of manages the transfer pricing 
compliance, if you will. Mimi, big takeaways from these two experts. So transfer pricing documentation at the end of the day is not a one and done exercise. And I think a lot of multinationals, while they can appreciate this, there's always been a little less stress and importance on having the documentation on an annual basis. And so many companies historically might have done a review every few years. But, you know, Lorraine is spot on. We love her. And by the way, she's an academic. She's even as an academic, she knows the rules are there and in place and you're required to have that documentation on an annual basis. It's important to have that documentation on an annual basis. For example, you're filing your tax returns on an annual basis and you have to reflect the facts and circumstances of the business every year and be able to highlight that within your documentation as well as your results, right? You need to be looking at that every year because even if the company's overall business organization might not have changed, first and foremost, the data has changed. It's not as if it's exactly the same amounts that are being charged every year. In addition to that, you have to double check and perhaps validate that the policies were being followed in accordance with the arm's length principle, as you might have outlined. And then on top of that, market conditions have changed year over year. And so could that have an impact to the way that your business engaged on an intercompany basis? Like the answer is it's yes, right? The transfer pricing exercise and evaluation process from a documentation perspective, it is something that should be adopted as just what I call a BAU process, right? Business as usual. It's, it's, it should be part of the job description. It should be part of the maintenance activities because this is, we know these requirements are not going away and they're only becoming more restrictive and tax authorities are looking at this information on a much more contemporaneous basis than they might have done in the past. Of course, these trends lead us to lesson number three, which is the evolution of tax administrations, tax transparency, and tax scrutiny warrants the need for error-free technological solutions. In this quote, we have a very familiar voice. I think that taxpayers and tax authorities need to be able to deploy technology more effectively to the entire benchmarking process to create a little bit less subjectivity. And that very familiar voice is you, Mimi. Of course, any takeaways from this episode 91 not too long ago, Benchmarking's Bold New Future? I think it's amazing because the tax department is part of the, probably one of the departments where I feel as if technology has been lacking or had been lacking, right? And the application of technology or machine learning and all these new enhancements to the, innovative enhancements to the way that people can work. It's important to think about that in the context of transfer pricing. And for example, when we think about benchmarking, we're able to leverage advancements in technology to be able to identify a better set of comparables. Just as an example, right? One of the many applications in this particular case. And also by applying technology, by applying these you know, different types of innovations, we're able to perhaps create more objectivity when it comes to the analysis because machines, they might be able to do the same sort of repetitive evaluations that, that a person does, but they're not going to be as subjective as perhaps a, a person like you and I, who has perhaps a preconceived notion of what it is that they want to identify, right? Or, or what they've experienced in the past. It's a great thing that I think technology is going to be applied more and more in the tax base, and especially in transfer pricing, and it should be leveraged more and evaluated so that we can continue to, as practitioners, build out better processes and think about better ways to do what it is that we have to handle today, right? Of course. And I know we've talked about this on our other podcasts, platforms when it comes to R&D, 
but it, just the legacy of Microsoft Excel looms large in this space. And that's only been really clarified to me. The, the more it comes up that everybody is just so used to spreadsheets. And when you add artificial intelligence into a software, into any kind of format, I mean, just the comparisons end there because it's, it's just a completely different ballgame. Yeah, I love my spreadsheet. Don't get me wrong, right? But yeah, of course. <laughs> I and and I think a lot of people are very comfortable with the spreadsheets. But even when you think about something like Excel, there have been significant advancements to that technology. And so it's not just Excel anymore. It's Excel with certain additional capabilities and different formulas. And then the when you think about you know technology in the case of the tax space or transfer pricing space where there's a lot more qualitative aspects to what you do people naturally think oh well you can't apply technology to qualitative exercises but you can right natural language processing you know cloud words if you think about that there, there's so much happening with technology and advancements in the space that it, it really has become a game changer and for even more insight on that, episode four with Cross Border Solutions own CEO Don Cher talking about artificial intelligence and the capabilities of machine learning, other forms of technology you're seeing play into the market today is just unbelievable and clarifying. On to lesson number four, and that is creating a value chain analysis. Post BEPS has magnified the need for taxpayers to be fully aware of their value chain from value drivers to related risks and functions. To better explain this quote, here's Johan Muller from just our last episode, the value of the value chain analysis. It's become a lot more important because it's become a requirement in the master file. I think that really forced a lot of groups to to also rethink their transfer pricing, to also, you know, try and look at the at the bigger picture. I mean, it it is very it's very easy to do transfer pricing with documentation of of a hundred pages mm -hmm. of about your group or whatever, right? It, it is extremely difficult to do the same on one page and to defend why your profits or your residual profits and your losses go, why they go where they go. And then the value chain analysis kind of forces you to do that. And, and I think it's interesting in that regard also that, that Action 13 says that you can do the value chain analysis as a graphic. Mimi, your reaction to that? The post-BEPS environment, it's very much focused on where value is created. And actually, even before the base erosion profit shifting action plan was initiated, I think there was always much more focus on this idea of, of value creation. And, and part of that is because the economic environment of businesses has evolved so much, right? The ability to target customers in a variety of different locations without having to have a physical presence. This notion of a digital economy has really changed the way that businesses operate and consumers consume, right? And so the value chain now going one step beyond what you might consider, which is the supply chain, the actual distribution of goods from beginning to end. And then the value chain highlights exactly what is driving profit, right? And why does Susie Smith want to buy those pair of shoes? Is it because she saw the Facebook advertisement from it when she was on vacation in Spain in that particular jurisdiction and she needed it because she was on the beach and it was targeted marketing, you know, so this concept of value and like what is ultimately driving the consumer to purchase that good, for example, acquire that service. Is it purely related to the value of the brand? It's not necessarily anymore, right? There's so many other elements now being introduced. Of course. And with the days of just considering, you know, a value nexus in a physical space, those days are gone. So the days are gone of referring to generic documentation. Those days are very much behind us. And that is lesson number five. The days of generic reports are behind us. Ramming home that point is Michael Quirk from our seventh episode, Benchmark Requirements. And that's kind of one of the the deadly sins of transfer pricing, just having generic regional benchmarks that don't take into account local regulations. 
I'll say if you didn't get this lesson by episode 10, at least, you might not have gotten it at all. But we also have another quote here from Michael Wallach in episode one, which I think you're on also as well, Mimi. You don't have hyper-localized studies really specific to the rules and regulations of each of these countries and jurisdictions, the preferred formatting semantics. You're dead in the water. They're handing out adjustments like it's going out of style. <laughs> Mike is so eloquent with his words. It's so <laughs> yes. floral with his words. <laughs> um, but your reaction to both? I think taxpayers can appreciate this because historically, yes. I mean, many multinationals would create a generic report, but let's all be honest about it. When you asked, hey, what happens if you actually get audited in Italy or in Germany or in Canada, what would you do with that generic report? Would you hand it over in response to the IDR? And so every taxpayer, though, when they're honest with themselves, say, no, actually, if we got an IDR with our generic report, we would have it localized. And so it's, it's sort of this different mindset. And now, well, I mean, it's the same mindset, meaning that the tax authorities are going to look for certain levels of localization. They're going to look at the report in that kind of detail. And, and everyone understands that. And now the tax authorities are making it more difficult to tell taxpayers and say, to force their hand a little bit and say, you know, your approach historically, we appreciate the attempt at being contemporaneous with your documentation through these generic reports, but we don't want that anymore. We want you to be cognizant of the local requirements. We want you to be more proactive about looking at your operations on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. And we need you to prove that to us now. We, we, we don't want you to take that generic approach anymore. We, we do want you to be understanding and appreciative of the fact that the market conditions here in Indonesia are different than Italy, which are different than Canada. And the way that you're structured, even if you might have the same type of operations in each of those different countries, let's be completely transparent. Have you really talked to the professionals on the ground? And in fact, are they actually doing all of those same things, right? Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And that leads us to our sixth lesson, and that is intercompany agreements need to be constantly reevaluated to ensure they align with the current facts and circumstances and the reality of your business. And to ram home this point is Paul Sutton from one of my favorite episodes. Definitely encourage everybody to check this out all on its own. Episode 13, Intercompany Agreements. You've got to express the essence of the arrangement, but in a way that, number one, is consistent with the transfer pricing policy, so the allocation of risks and, and functions. And number two is consistent with the other legal needs of the group, so that includes things like asset protection, IP protection, and, mm -hmm. and the legal governance of the structure as, as, as a whole. Mimi, your reaction to that? Intercompany agreements should always be put into place, and they become even more important when we think about a disastrous situation, right? So post-pandemic, this is when those agreements become important. Otherwise, sure, many companies may not think that an agreement between related parties is as important because, hey, we're all part of the same family. We're going to be fine, right? <laughs> but having that legal framework in place does become important when you're talking about these types of situations. And so I'm sure those companies out there that have their agreements in place all buttoned up, 
they're feeling pretty good. They might have had to make some modifications over the last year, right? It also might have given them a reason to make modifications, which is even better. But agreements are that much more important because ultimately that is the legal contract. The, those are the binding terms that ultimately can be argued in, in a court of law and respected. Of course, of course. And in speaking of unforeseen events, that brings us to our seventh lesson, and that is transfer pricing will be impacted during unforeseen events, notably the COVID-19 pandemic. And another very familiar voice here. I think the pandemic has created a lot of complexity in terms of companies' profitability, their ability to operate within their particular environment, government assistance programs, government lockdown mandates, all of those issues are going to have to be addressed properly. And so, and the tax authorities are going to want to see exactly how they can help shore up these deficits. And they're going to want to make sure that a taxpayer is telling their full story, right? And highlighting how much aid or assistance they might've been receiving in the past, in order to make sure that they're still paying their fair share of taxable income. Mimi, take us through what you were talking about in this specific instance. We've always talked about the fact that transfer pricing is a facts and circumstances-based exercise. It, everything goes back to what's happening, what does the company do, what kind of risks does it incur, what kind of assets are being employed, what are the market conditions, what's happening. And so we know that ultimately when there are unforeseen events, right, like the pandemic, it's that additional layer of attention that needs to be monitored, that needs to be accounted for, right, adjusted for if needed. But it also creates an environment where the tax authorities, they have to figure out what they're going to do. They have to figure out, okay, you know, let's make sure that taxpayers, we understand that they're struggling, but we don't want them also to just think that it's not a priority for them to be compliant with the local requirements, right? There's, there's always that, that balanced approach that governments need to take in order to figure out, okay, we want to help our people. We don't want to make it more of a problem, but at the same time, they need to do the right thing, right? Because unforeseen circumstances like the pandemic, it creates a reprioritization of what's important for an organization. And and yet the tax authorities will basically want to make sure that they don't lose sight of their mandated requirements, at least as a tax paying citizen, right? So it's still important to think about compliance. It should never be completely ignored. Compliance is a necessity, right? And so taxpayers cannot forget that they have to comply with the local rules and regulations and do all of these administrative things, administrative tasks, which, which don't go away. I think during the pandemic, a lot of governments allowed for extra time to be able to fulfill these requirements. So that was the balanced approach that they incorporated. But at the end of the day, it's not as if they said, don't worry about it. You don't have to fulfill these requirements. They, those requirements still existed. And in fact, there are some jurisdictions that were more cognizant and made those requirements a little bit more strict and, and to say, and enhance them, right? So some jurisdictions that ultimately said, hey, Starting in 2020, you have to actually file your transfer pricing reports. And so it's definitely an area that I think tax authorities are are still paying attention to, especially post-pandemic. Of course, and a big reason why that is has to do with our eighth lesson, and that is M&Es are guilty until proven innocent of base erosion and profit shifting. At least that's what it feels like in an increasingly intensifying audit environment. Pamesh Sharma from episode 98, talking about the recent HMRC crackdown. I think it's definitely, HMRC is definitely tackling compliance from all angles. And by looking at the number of staff, it's increasing, planning to pursue criminal investigations. It's really demonstrating that, you know, there's, there's going to be a, 
you know, zero tolerance, I think, to any form of profit diversion or, or underpayment of taxes. Definitely, the HMRC is not alone in this focus, of course. They're not, exactly. I mean, I think that multinationals, ultimately, this sentiment from the tax authorities to say that multinationals are taking advantage of tax arbitrage situations is widely echoed, right, beyond just the HMRC. There are lots of different jurisdictions that think multinationals are not paying their fair share of taxes. And this concept that companies are ultimately guilty before proven innocent, that's the sentiment these days. But it's been that way for a while, I will say. I feel as if when I talked about transfer pricing or when my friends finally figured out that transfer pricing was, you know, what what I did. And they were like, oh, so you help shift profits offshore. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's that's not what I do. <laughs> that's exactly opposite of what I do. I help prove that the profits were not shifted illegally or that the tax base was actually being eroded. And so the concept or the idea of transfer pricing right now, I think it is being sort of negatively received and I ultimately, that's the environment that we're all operating under, right? It's like, you're engaged in transfer pricing practices, you're clearly doing something wrong. And I think we're going to continue to see that perspective across the globe, yeah, unfortunately. That's a big difference even from not too long ago. I think it was August we had uh, the gentleman from the CRA who was telling us how transfer pricing is a household name in Canada. And it had very much specifically for its negative connotations. And we were talking not that long ago how it's not quite there yet in America. But I think something has definitely changed. Definitely in, in I want to say, in the last year, year and a half, where I think this is becoming a little bit more part of the lexicon and for, unfortunately, all the wrong reasons. Which leads us to our ninth lesson, and that is transfer pricing methods matter. To ram home this point, here's Oliver Treidler from episode 52, Transfer Pricing in Germany. Like traditionally, they would prefer the standard method. So, so the COP, uh, cost plus, and the resale uh, method, they are, let's say, there's a mild hierarchy. So every every method is, is, is okay, even by law. So you can apply any method you want, but, but the cup is a little bit traditionally a little bit above the others. Also ramming this point home, here's Terence Wilhelm from episode 54, Transfer Pricing in France. So if I were to speak about statistics, I would say that, frankly, based on my experience, 75 or 80% of cases, the French tax administration is, is using a TNMM. And in a very small portion or the remaining 20%, they are using other methods. Profit split, it's very, very rare. Uh, that's a very wide margin in terms of how just methodology and hierarchies can be applied right there between two countries not too far away from each other in all respects. Right. I mean, I I think the message here, the lesson here being transfer pricing methods matter is important because the selection of the best method or the most reliable method is number one important, but also the understanding of what tax authorities, which methods the tax authorities are going to want to review, right, are going to pay special attention to, given their own personal experiences and or audit practices. And so if you are a company that's preparing your documentation in Germany, for example, and, and perhaps you have some third-party observations where a cup could theoretically be applied, but when upon your evaluation, you're able to break that cup, you know, saying that there are clearly comparability circumstances that don't work in these situations. Pay closer attention to those. Make sure you're highlighting those reasons within your documentation, because you should anticipate that the German tax authority may want to look at that more closely because of their own preferences. And so in anticipation of that, making sure that your argument is more sound in terms of why it's not applicable in those particular situations is important. And that's the same with France, the which is the other side, which is more so about applying a profit-based analysis. Let's say you found a cup that was applicable for purposes of your analysis, but corroborating that with the TNMM 
would be useful so that you anticipate what it is that the French tax authority might want to look at. And so being able to anticipate what they're going to say, how they're going to challenge you, what they're going to see will just put you as a taxpayer in a much better light if and when you're going to be getting audited. That's right. And that all underscores lesson 10, our final lesson for this 100th celebratory episode of the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, and that is scrutiny doesn't just come from tax authorities. The whole world is watching. Ramming this point home, here's Alex Parker from episode 44 on tax transparency. These companies are under a lot of pressure to be more transparent, and obviously they have to make a decision about like, is the value we get from being a transparent company worth the blowback that we'll get because some of the things we show are not going to be uh, pretty. And here's Johan Muller from episode 99, the value of the value chain analysis. I, I, <laughs> I think most multinationals want to be good corporate citizens. There's no doubt about that. And that's also what they say. And that's also what you read in their tax policy statements and all those things. I think what is incredibly difficult is when there are rubber meet the road to stick yeah. to that. It is very easy to say we want to be upright, we want to do things right, et cetera, et cetera. But when you discover something and, and there's a potential multi-million dollar exposure that comes up, it becomes very difficult for multinationals not to go into logical fallacies and arguments which simply do not make sense. I think, you know, as much as this is a difficult subject to bring up, Mimi, I think this might ring bells for at least a few listeners out there. What are your thoughts kind of more pinpointing what Alex and Johan touch on here? It's it's so true that the whole world is watching, right? And and judging and and that yeah. reputational risk as it pertains to tax um, and tax practices is much more elevated these days. I mean, this is applicable, I think, in, in all facets of the way that companies do business now. Because of social media, because of information sharing, I think it's just, it's that much more important for companies to be aware of whether or not they're being perceived as a good corporate taxpaying citizen, right? It's, it's so important for them to do that. I think it's really important to be mindful of the reputational damage that could be incurred by that company. I mean, when when Amazon was in the news for having a 0% effective tax rate, that was huge, right? Right. The Starbucks case, that became a really big area of contention, right? And so when in the EU, the sentiment on Starbucks was, oh my gosh, don't, you know, they're not paying their fair share of taxes and those tax dollars are not going to help our local economy. They're not going to help go, go back to, you know, benefiting the citizens, then Starbucks is going to be vilified. And ultimately people decided to boycott Starbucks, right? I mean, those are some of the examples of what is happening on a country by country basis where there are serious consequences to having reputational damage for not paying your fair share of taxes. It's it's a big deal, right? Of course, of course. And just to recap all of the lessons learned throughout this episode, Fiona has turned 100, and we've got to say she's never looked better. Over the course of 100 episodes, we've seen a little bit of everything. The influx of new transfer pricing rules and regulations, heightened awareness around what's going on in the tax community from the public, why documentation is the ultimate saving grace. Even a rewrite on the global tax corporate system and transfer pricing challenges created by the pandemic. Even Fiona couldn't have predicted that, and I can only imagine what the next 100 episodes reveal. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
reporting software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty excited about turning the tables here, Matt, right? Normally you do the rapid fire questions and now you're in the hot seat. So of course, the question number one, are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. This is so exciting. Okay. So Matthew, how has the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing deepened your breadth of knowledge in this niche area of, of tax? Oh boy, I did. You know what? It's a, it's an interesting story because I had heard of transfer pricing before I applied to cross border solutions. Did you really? And I still I still looked it up. I still googled okay. it when when I was writing my cover letter to apply to cross border solutions. But I worked for a place called the World Policy Institute a little bit before. We had done a lot of dealings with the OECD, and I knew the general gist of transfer pricing from all of my experience there. Needless to say, I knew so little that even the first episode would have taught me something. I, I, I don't know if I could really get through any kind of documentation myself at this point, but I feel like I'd I'd know where everything was going if you gave me some Emmys documentation. Oh, yeah. I, no, I think I think you could be a little bit dangerous in this area. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I could do maybe I could do a whole you know benchmarking search by hand. Woohoo! Well, you could definitely 50. do that with Fiona. So, question yes. number two: What do you most like about hosting the show? You know, you were saying before it's it's a very dry subject matter, but I've always prided myself on being able to make that entertaining. And I, I know from our client summits back when they were in person, I've had a lot of great responses and thank you to all these people who say these wonderful things, but they tend to enjoy that I breathe a little fresh air into the dry subject matter. It's a little bit like what I remember George Carlin saying about suppressed laughter being the easiest. I know I've needed to tone it down a little bit as, as we get ready for the big time in the spotlight. But that's been my favorite part. Just, just breathing a couple jokes, breathing a little life and a little energy into this space. That's great. That's a good segue into the next question, which is ultimately, yes. who is a guest that has made you laugh out loud? And who is a guest that has made you think? Oh, man, it's the same answer. Is and it? I Absolutely think she could do a tight five at the next in-person event that we do. But Barbara Montagani, I think she could be a complete transfer pricing stand-up comedian. Absolutely. That's, that's hilarious. I love that. Yeah, she... She just all of her all of her little quotes. Yeah, I know one we tend to prefer because it just rams so many lessons that we try to communicate on the show. You know, don't let the transfer pricing tail wag the business dog in your documentation. I know that's I'm paraphrasing a bit there, but she's just so full of those one liners. So she easily makes me laugh out loud. And for one of the few guests we have that doesn't have this, you know, professorial background, all of that still it just with the depth of her experience always i leave her programs with thinking about something new when it comes to transfer pricing absolutely great I, and how do you hope our listeners feel after they listen to an episode of the fiona show for transfer pricing well i think i can also speak for our new for the most part audio producer he's taking over producing these shows end to end andrew o'donnell so i can focus more on our narrative stuff so you'll be hearing him credited solely at the end of the show in the next few episodes but i always hope they leave every episode thinking wow that sounds so good i felt like i was in the room i also hope they learn something i also hope that they get out of the show what i get out of the show which is that every episode we get into i i always leave thinking really transfer pricing is where global political economy comes face to face with global economics as two different academic disciplines. And the more you can look at 
what's going on in transfer pricing, what's going on in global tax from both sides of that division, I think the more you'll you'll have a complete understanding uh, of where we're going. Right. Well, and it's, so it goes back to what we said in the beginning, edutainment, right? So edutainment. edutainment. What jurisdiction do you actually find the most intriguing in terms of compliance regulations? We've talked about them all these days. So yeah, it, you know, I know we made a big deal about the guns in Italy and that element, but Italy is really, really interesting. Even, you know, outside of, of enforcement details, I think Italy is a really neat microcosm for the incentives that countries have to make things more difficult or make things more easy. It, it doesn't it's not very simple when you get into the data. One of our other favorite guests and a, a really brilliant guy who works here, I know everybody here loves him, Michael Simone, as he loves to point out, you know, when you really get into the specifics you know, all of your ideological beliefs about, oh, how it's just this way. Now that all that kind of physics in a vacuum kind of melts away, especially when you get into the nitty gritty details. And I think Italy in particular is very indicative of that. Yep. And I think De Simone, right? Yes. With his ancestral background has something to say yes. about that. So. <laughs> He might have a lot of things to say about that, but I can't speak for him and his expertise in that area. Awesome. Thank All you, right. Matthew. Yes. We want to thank Mimi for being on today's show, as well as countless episodes of our 100. That is to say, we want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out Cross Border Solutions' entire suite of tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello, produced by Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. We're in the home stretch of this, folks, so stay safe out there, use your judgment, and we'll catch everybody next week. We want to thank Mimi for being on today's show, as well as countless episodes of our 100. That is to say, we want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out Cross Border Solutions' entire suite.